God, our Father, uh, thank you indeed for your word. Thank you for this particular book of the Bible. Uh, we're always glad to thank you for having raised up this man, Luke, with his particular background, his particular gifts, his particular uh, aptitude for uh, that clarity of thought and that precision of detail. And we praise you for the way in which your Holy Spirit simply uh, ordered his thinking, ordered his writing in such a way that we have before us uh, such a well-structured, such a helpful, illuminating gospel record. And insofar as your Holy Spirit himself authored that word, we ask that he too would be our teacher this evening, that he would give to us understanding, that he'd help us to, to see how the thing holds together, and to be able then to apply that to the living of our lives in a way that will be truly transformative and truly to your praise and glory. So be with us now and grant us your help as we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's say the, the fourth section is quite a long section um, that runs from chapter uh, 9, verse 51, uh, through to chapter 13, uh, verse uh, 30. Um, and this section and the next section of Luke's gospel are actually really quite closely related. Um, they comprise um, what uh, is regularly referred to as the, the travel narrative. Um, it runs from chapter 9, verse 51, right through to chapter 19, verse 27, and uh, described as the, the travel narrative because they have their center of gravity in many ways in the journey of Jesus from Galilee in the north to Jerusalem in the or towards the south of the land of Israel. And we'll start looking at that travel narrative in this session, which I've called the mission and complete it next time under the heading of the ministry. Um, but this, if you do your maths, you'll appreciate this is the, the middle of the seven sections in Luke's gospel. And there is a, a certain appropriateness in uh, being able to recognize um, from the title that this is uh, integral to all that Luke is recounting. It is the mission. Um, if you look at the, the Bible, um, uh, at the, the actual text of Luke, and I always encourage you to have that open beside you, Luke chapter 9, verse 51, you'll see how this section starts. Um, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And this middle section of Luke's gospel uh, centers, therefore, around a journey. And it is, I think, helpful to see it in those terms. It is about our traveling with him, uh, his call to follow and his call to us to share with him in his mission. And that's, that's why the whole um, series, the whole module is entitled by me simply on the road. He calls us to follow him and to share with him in his mission. Um, there is a geographic aspect, obviously, to this journey. Um, just uh, saying a, a word or two about the, the nature of this journey to start with, the geographic aspect. The specific journey here is from Galilee and its synagogues in the north, if you know your geography of um, Israel, to Jerusalem and its temple in the south. And it's helpful, I think, just to, to get that sort of frame of reference. 
the synagogues in the north temple in the south the synagogues were the place for the the kind of weekly worship of the people of god the temple was the place where the great festivals the three major festivals in the life of the people of israel took place they traveled from all their different parts to the temple but there is also a redemptive aspect to this journey uh, it is the journey you will see to his ascension if you look carefully at that verse 51 as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven uh, that's really the culmination point it's not so much a geographic end point as a redemptive end point it is a journey which will take him to a cross at a place called Golgotha and to the darkness and coldness of a tomb in which he'll be buried. But the outcome will be that he's raised from the dead, ascended on high and pours out his spirit on his people to enable and empower us to share with him in his ongoing mission. And when taken together, these two aspects, the geographic and the redemptive, shed important light on the mission of Jesus. So let me uh, try and explain what I mean by saying just a little bit about the significance of the journey. Three important points to notice about the section in Luke's gospel. Uh, you have them in the handout, you have them on the screen. First is the setting is Samaria. Uh, it is a journey which takes him through Samaria. And Samaria is a place and a people who are certainly unfriendly, if not downright hostile towards the Jews. And that's the first thing just to be clear about in our understanding of, of what's happening in this section. The second thing to notice is that the material is unique. Unlike much of the rest of Luke's gospel, uh, the bulk of the material in these two sections, this one and next week's, uh, which are set, as I say, in Samaria, the bulk of the material uh, here is uh, is pretty much exclusive to Luke. You don't find this in Matthew uh, or Mark, the other two synoptic gospels, or in John. And that, I think, has a certain significance when it is borne in mind that Luke is writing for a constituency which is not Jewish that Luke himself is not a Jew, and he will, in his second volume, chronicle the mission of Jesus through his church to the non-Jewish world, the Gentile world, a mission which will start with the gospel being taken to, you guessed it, Samaria. Uh, Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So the uh, material is exclusive here. And the third point to notice about this uh, whole uh, section that's called the travel narrative is that the medium here is very much story. Parables, including some of the most famous and extended of Jesus' parables. He did tell a lot of parables, obviously, but some of them are, are really quite extended. Uh, parables comprise much of the material in these two sections and the significance of that fact should not be missed as we seek to learn how Jesus went about bringing the good news to those who are essentially unchurched and we'll explore that further as we can think through the the fourth uh, spiritual discipline uh, a little bit later.
Now, you have uh, in your handout, and uh, I think uh, you'll get on the screen as well, the, the basic structure. So I'll not take time this evening running through what that structure is. You can see it for yourself, and it's uh, uh, clearly laid out for you in a way that I hope will be helpful in terms of giving you a, a kind of um, route map through this particular section tonight. Uh, five different sections, so there's quite a lot of ground for us to cover, uh, and uh, it will, I hope, repay further study on your part if I uh, just walk you through the material to start with in our time together tonight. The first block of material I've entitled simply Loving the Neighbours, and that runs from chapter 9 verse 51 to chapter 10 verse 37. Um, you recall the, the whole section I've entitled The Mission, uh, because it has everything to do with the scope of Jesus' calling. Remember, he is, as Luke would have us understand, he is the true man, anointed by the Spirit of God to exercise the rule of God through the Word of God. And that anointing, as we saw last time, is authenticated by the miracles that he performed. He is the man accredited by God, as Peter puts it on the day of Pentecost, the one, as he says in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, the one accredited by God to you by the miracles, wonders and signs which God did among you through him. And just as Adam and Eve in the very beginning were told by God to fill the earth, so too the scope of Jesus' ministry encompasses the whole earth. It will be, as he will say to the disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it will be to the ends of the earth that he sends them as his disciples, starting in Jerusalem and then spreading out from there through Judea and into Samaria and on out to the ends of the earth. And Samaria, therefore, would be the first major staging post in that process, the first point at which the good news breaks through the firm religious walls of Judaism. The mission of Jesus, in other words, has the world, all the earth, in view. He has come as the true man to fill the earth. And Samaria, Samaria is the first decisive, and if you are a Jew, disturbing indicator of that intent. The true man is intent now on extending the rule of God through the word of God, by the spirit of God, throughout the whole earth, among all nations. And you'll understand, therefore, the significance of the fact that the first major block of material in this new section both begins and ends with reference to Samaritans, because they are the neighbours, the people who live next door but who don't share your convictions, and with whom over the years there have been considerable tensions. How are we to view them? More to the point, how are we to love them? And what's our responsibility towards them? Well, the, um, the block of material breaks down uh, like this. First of all, we have um, a part that speaks about our following Jesus. Uh, verses 51 to 62 of chapter 9. The call to follow Jesus is a call ultimately to share in his mission. We can't get away from that. And he makes it clear from the start that there is a need for two things. First of all, this is 51 to 56, uh, what are called careful engagement. Jesus is on a journey. It's a geographic journey, but a spiritual journey as well. And it is a journey which will take him through Samaria. Samaria, remember, is hostile territory. 
This is the territory between the synagogues in the north and the temple in the south. Um, Eugene Peterson, um, I mentioned this book uh, called The Word Made Flesh. I've mentioned that before. And in that book, he likens this to the territory in our lives between one Sunday's worship and the next Sunday's worship. The people that we meet, the neighbours that we encounter, as it were, in the course of our everyday lives in between our weekly day of worship on the Sabbath when we're simply, as it were, doing life with those around us. And here there are two lessons to be learned straight off. First of which is don't avoid your Samaria. A lot of Jews did deliberately avoid Samaria when they went from the north to the south. They traveled the long way round uh, and bypassed Samaria simply because they, they did not want to uh, engage at all with the Samaritans. Jesus doesn't adopt that approach. Uh, he travels through Samaria. He goes right into that territory. He engages with them. And we too are summoned to travel with him. The church is never meant to be some kind of spiritual ghetto, in other words, where we tuck ourselves away from the neighbours on our doorstep. And that can quite easily, without our realising it, actually become the pattern of our lives, particularly the busier we become in the life of the church, the more involved we are in a whole range of different activities, we can end up having very little engagement with those who are uh, our Samaritans, our neighbours like that. That's the first thing, don't avoid your Samaria. And the second thing is don't dismiss your Samaria. The disciples very quickly, you'll see in these verses, discover that they're not welcomed with open arms in Samaria. Surprise, surprise. And Jesus basically says, yes, uh, that's going to happen. Just get used to it. The disciples, you'll see, are all for a kind of fire from heaven, scorched earth policy, which I imagine they'd have derived from Elijah. Remember, they've just been up the mountain, some of them, and they've seen Jesus in the company of, guess who? Yep, Elijah and Moses, who have been saying basically to Jesus, go do it. And Jesus says, uh, no deal. Um, so don't start writing people off because they don't agree. Um, don't, in other words, go in with all guns blazing. Um, and that's the, the first thing that is underlined for us in our following Jesus and sharing in his mission, uh, that careful engagement and careful in the sense of it being full of a genuine care for them. Then in verses 57 to 62, the second thing that Jesus points to here is the need for total commitment. The, uh, um, the requirement here is, is fairly clear. Uh, there is, I hope you see, an important balance in Jesus' approach here. Although the reception in Samaria is less than enthusiastic, nonetheless, there's a load of people wanting to sign up straight away. But he just turns these people away. And he does so because all of them have a qualified commitment. And Jesus simply does not compromise on what following him involves. And uh, you're meant to see the balance there. He's not going to turn people away and zap them because of an initial lack of enthusiasm for him. But equally, he's not going to buy and accept with open arms the qualified enthusiasm which others are displaying. It is a total commitment that he calls for. And it's instructive to see just what that total commitment comprises. Look at these verses 57 to, to 62. 
Uh, first of all, I think it's it's helpful to recognize the way in which uh, Jesus handles these three different individuals who come to him with their enthusiasm, because he is effectively highlighting what the rest of the New Testament underscores, namely the combination of faith, hope and love as the essence of that response of commitment that we make to him. That's that's pervasive through the New Testament. You, these three belong inseparably together. Faith, hope, love, always together. And in many ways, that's what you see here in, these, uh, in his response to these three individuals. To the first person, he's insisting that we are genuinely outward looking. That's to say he insists that we are marked by love. Uh, you have no guarantee of an earthly home because your true home is going to be in heaven. Uh, you ought to be more concerned for the needs and the comfort and the care of others than for your own comfort and well-being. Are you ready for that? That outward, uh, out, outward looking uh, aspect to commitment. To the second individual, he's demanding that we are truly upward looking or in other words, that we are marked by faith. Uh, you have no reason, in other words, he says, to delay because the kingdom of God is your first priority. It's not your hobby, not something you add on to your CV when it suits. It is to be the first primary priority in your life. And to the third individual, he's requiring that we are always forward looking, a people who are marked by hope, not looking back, but pressing forward in the knowledge that there is still work to be done. And that again is, is a very, very uh, constant New Testament emphasis. Uh, you find it in John chapter nine, for instance, the story of the man born blind, the disciples, they want to say whose fault was this? They want to take it all back and say, you know, what's the reason for it? Um, they are looking back the way Jesus says, you're asking the wrong question there. Um, the fact of the matter is, this is where he is now. How do we take it on from here? How do we take it forward from here in a way that is to be to the glory of God? And that's the, the package that lies behind the commitment that the scriptures are always calling for faith, hope and love. Uh, the three belonging together. There's a guy that uh, I've been meeting with for um, something like four years on a pretty regular basis. And, and it's on all three fronts that I'm still working with him, just getting a handle on this, that, that the essence of that relationship with Jesus means that we start looking up in faith rather than down, out in love rather than in, and forward, please, always forward rather than backwards um, in hope. That's uh, following Jesus. Um, then in chapter 10, the first 24 verses, we find him sending out the disciples. Uh, there's a certain logical sequence in this, obviously. Uh, they're called to follow. And as they come to him, he then sends them out. Um, they are, as I say, a follow on uh, because uh, following Jesus is not a spectator sport. You get to share in the work of God's kingdom. And a lot of the time it is, as the previous chapter ended, it is like plowing. So here's what you need to know again. First of all, verses 1 to 16, there is work for you to do. The uh, 12 apostles had already been sent out. You read about that in chapter 9. Earlier on, we saw that last time. 
And it's tempting for us to think, and I suppose it would have been tempting for the other disciples then to think that these guys were the professionals. They're the ones who get to do this sort of thing while the rest of us sit back and watch how they do it. And Jesus simply knocks that on the head. Um, note here, verses one to three, how they're appointed. Uh, there is a statement, first of all, the harvest is plentiful. And I imagine uh, these disciples gathered around him are thinking immediately, yep, yeah, that's, that's positive, that's good, and that's quite exciting. But then, too, there's not only a statement, there is an exhortation, and that follows. So, he says, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. And I guess inside they're probably thinking, because they're pretty much like us, uh, they're probably thinking, okay, we can kind of cope with this. Uh, we'll do that next time we come together for our prayer meeting. We'll be asking the Lord, yes, we can do that. We'll put that on our kind of uh, prayer update, things to ask for. Ask the Lord of the Harvest to send out uh, workers. But then, to their surprise and dismay, not only is there a statement with which to start, the harvest is plentiful, an exhortation, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field, but there's a command. So go, he says. And they're probably thinking, um, but hey, we haven't even had our prayer meeting yet. And they don't like the sound of the deal that they are being given. They are to go out as lambs among wolves. And, well, you know who wins that one every day. And they're thinking uh, sometimes the Lord moves just a little bit too fast. A lot of the time we think the Lord moves too slowly, but some of the time he moves way too fast for us. And that, I guess, is what they're thinking here. But that's how they're appointed. Uh, a statement, the harvest is plentiful. Uh, uh, the, the calling to, to, to the Lord to send out workers into the harvest. And, by the way, you're the answer to your prayer. Uh, it's your calling. You go. Then verses 4 to 16, uh, note how they are directed as they are sent out. Um, this is how he sends you out, how he sends us out. And here again, a number of simple directives. Verse 4, stay focused. Um, it's not, in other words, a shopping expedition nor a pleasant trip to the beach. There is a specific destination. You can't reach the whole world, but there is a part of that world where he means you to be. Go there and make sure you get there and don't get distracted. Um, and, and I've always found for myself that very helpful. Uh, having been called, first of all, to a charge in Cumbernauld, um, that I understood was where the Lord had set me. That was what I was to do. I was to be a parish minister there. I was to uh, apply my energies to that. And although there were attractive uh, invitations to other things, uh, they were distractions. That's not what I was there for. I was there to minister in that place to that people and for that season. And that's what he's saying. First of all, verse four, stay focused. Verses five to nine, he's underlining something that is also really important for us to get a hold of. Start positive. Hit a positive note from the start. Um, do take a look at that, verses five to nine. Uh, don't be too pernickety about ceremonials, uh, just make sure that you bring the healing grace of God into their experience. Sometimes our inclination is, uh, depending on our personality type, I guess, to some extent, but our inclination is to be just a little bit pernickety and to pick up on, on little things that are wrong here and little things that are wrong there and a whole load of stuff that, that needs to be corrected. Uh, start with the positives, build on that and aim as you go to bring by your very presence, the healing grace of God. 
And then verses 10 to 16, a third important um, directive given to us. Um, you, uh, you stay focused, you start positive, and thirdly, you stress seriousness. Um, this is not, in other words, a message at the luxury end of the market, which you can simply take or leave as you wish. As if you were to kind of say to folk or communicate to folk, this may be your thing, but hey, maybe not. It doesn't really matter. Bottom line is it does matter. It matters hugely. And, and it is important in our dealings with folk that we let them know that their exposure to the message and the healings through that, that God is speaking to them. And it's important that we let people know that that brings responsibility too. Uh, and so we stress the, the seriousness of it there. So the first thing that um, uh, in sending out the disciples, he's underlined, is that there is work for them to do. Second thing that's important to note is verses 17 to 24, there is life for you to know. Um, you'll see how in these verses they come back from having been sent out and have engaged in the mission of Jesus. They come back and they are chuffed out of their skin. Uh, they were scared, certainly going out, but now having gone out, they have seen some amazing things going on. Uh, they have, in other words, they have tasted power. They've tasted the power of the age to come. They've tasted the power of the Spirit of God, and it is, to some extent, intoxicating. Even the demons submit to us in your name, they tell Jesus excitedly. So Jesus gives them, first of all, a warning, verses 18 to 20. Uh, it is possible, this is the warning, it is possible to be more taken up with the work of God than with the Lord himself. It's all too possible to be engrossed in and find our pleasure in busy lives of service rather than being engrossed in Jesus himself. Uh, rejoice, certainly, that the devil is defeated. Rejoice, certainly, that you are empowered by the Spirit of God, but rejoice supremely that you are part of God's family, that you belong, that you have a relational intimacy as his beloved child. You have a security, you have a dignity, you have an authority as such. Now, this can come into play, I guess, when we get older and we lose some of our energy and we're no longer able to do what once we were doing. Uh, it can be sometimes really quite frustrating uh, if, in particular, our joy has actually been in the work of God rather than in the person of our Lord and Savior. Our joy is to be in him. So he, he starts by giving them a warning as they come back. Um, and then in verses 21 and 22, he provides for them a model. This is a picture of Jesus rejoicing. And it is the only time in the gospel records that he is specifically said to rejoice. Uh, I put it in those terms because obviously uh, there is that joy that runs through his whole ministry. But this is the only point in the gospel records where he is specifically said to rejoice. We read elsewhere that he grieved. We read elsewhere that he was sorrowful. We read elsewhere that he was troubled. But this is the only time we're told specifically that he rejoiced. And so we do well to look at what that joy looks like. 
Uh, and here are the components of that joy that he is talking about, that he bids his disciples ensure they are experiencing as well. Um, he is, in that joy, he is full of the Holy Spirit. This is a joy that is not dependent upon his personality type, nor is it dependent upon his circumstances, but it is a joy that flows through him by means of the Holy Spirit himself. And, and that is the nature of the joy that is ours. It's not a joy that we work up. It is a joy that is given to us as the Holy Spirit has free course in our lives. You see, too, that he is addressing his father. Um, and so it is essentially, it is a relational joy. It is a delight, the delight of a, a little child in the security of uh, that child's father, uh, knowing the um, absolute nature of that love, knowing the protection, knowing the uh, benevolence, knowing the generosity, knowing the understanding, knowing the care of that father, knowing the security that there is in that father's presence and in that father's arms. And that's the joy, again, that is ministered to us by the Holy Spirit. It is a relational joy, the, the enjoyment of our God and Father through Jesus. And the third facet of the joy that is Jesus here is his delight in grace. Um, just notice what he's, he's saying here in these verses. Um, he's... he's speaking about them in terms of their being children. Um, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. Now, there aren't any children in these stories. Um, the only people who are around are the disciples, and he's referring to them as a bunch of loons, basically. Um, that's what he's calling his disciples, um, pretty much numpties um, in common parlance. And here are these loons who've had their eyes open to see what the clever intellectuals, despite all their formal training and education and the impressive list of initials after their names, what the wise and the learned simply could not see, they have been enabled to see. Uh, these numpties, his disciples, have come to see the Father. It is, in other words, it is revelation. Uh, it is not something you work out or reason out for yourself. It is something that is revealed to you by the God who delights to do you good. And that's what rejoices the heart of G. He just delights in grace. Uh, God doing for those who, who don't have the capacity to do it for themselves, doing good for them and to them. Uh, he delights in grace. And that's the joy that he models for them. And finally, in verses 23, 24, in terms of this particular part where, uh, where we're thinking about his sending out the disciples, there is a summary in verses 23 to 24. Um, blessing, in other words, doesn't come any bigger than this. That's basically what he's saying. Remember Moses, he's perhaps saying to his disciples here, remember how Moses was asking God, show me your glory. And uh, and remember what the Lord said, I'm afraid not, uh, you can't see my glory. And here are these guys, and they are getting to see God in action. They're getting to be with the living God. Peter, uh, Philip would later say to Jesus, show us the Father. 
uh, John chapter 14, verse 8. And Jesus had to say to him, well, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And that is to be their joy that they know God experientially. They know the immediacy of his presence. And then we go on um, to the conclusion of this first block of material, um, what are called neighbor love, verses 25 to 37. He encounters a man, the flaws in whose life are gently exposed by Jesus in one of the most famous stories he told. And guess what? It's back to the Samaritans, who are, of course, the neighbors. Jesus picks up on a series of critical issues, which this man, like so many people we meet, uh, has to address. Uh, three in particular. And again, you've got them on the handout. First of which is that it is not the form, but the power which matters to quote Paul's words in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5. Uh, this is the first important issue which this narrative, along with the parable told by Jesus, makes clear for us. Let me say a word about the, the lawyer. Um, the lawyer is um, a religious guy. Uh, he is an expert. Um, you are, to understand, not someone in a, in a kind of pin-type suit uh, who earns a, a whole load of money, but rather someone who is an expert in the law of God. He is a renowned scholar. Uh, he has, you will see, the form of godliness, but he lacks the power. And you see that in the way, first of all, that he stood up, which signaled respect. But the reason he did so was to test Jesus. And so he sets out to be impressive in a, a respectful sort of way, but yet he is intent upon being dismissive. The mere form, but not the power of godliness. You see it also in the way that he asked a good question, which seemed outwardly wise. But he did so, we're told, to justify himself. In other words, he was using religious questions to appear learned and correct and good, while all the time this sort of question was actually simply a front. Uh, that's the lawyer. And then you come to the characters in the story. And the same distinction between the form of godliness and its real power is illustrated further in the story itself. You'll notice again how um, they are designated. They are religious guys, a priest and a Levite. They are religious practitioners. And like the lawyer who asked the question, these religious types are also going to justify their conduct. They're going to say they're simply following the rules. This is time off for the priest. Uh, he's on a break, uh, heading back down the road, quite literally, from Jerusalem to his palm tree strewn commuter belt home in Jericho. Uh, a lot of priests lived there. It was a quiet, relaxing place to chill out after all the demands of their work in the Jerusalem temple. And he'd have been understandably looking forward to this break. And here's his predicament. If he gets too close to a corpse and the man has been left, we're told, half dead, verse 30, and presumably it looks whole dead, then he'll have to about turn, hike back up the road to Jerusalem, buy the requisite animals and make the appropriate sacrifice in order to ensure he's cleansed from that defilement. There are rules after all about this. And this is shaping up to be a bad roll of the dice in a game of ecclesiastical snakes and ladders for him. It's potentially gonna be back to square one for the guy and he'll have to start all over again. And so you can understand why he wants to make a sufficiently wide detour. 
And the Levite, well, the Levites were by and large the, the kind of lackeys of the priests. They were the, the roadies who did the hard lifting for and took their lead from the priests. And so no surprise, the Levite does just what the religious guy in front has done. He's just playing follow my leader. And we do well to remember what Jesus said at the house of Matthew, the tax collector, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. It is not the form of godliness, in other words, but the power which matters. That's the, the first uh, important lesson from the, the story. The second is that it's not safety, but security, which counts. Um, look first at the, the story itself. The story is about people on a journey. The uh, fact that uh, they're on a journey is, is um, pertinent uh, for the man who asked the question, because life is a journey. And if there is a heaven at its end, if there's a life that's going to be full and lasting, well, hey, we want to be sure we get there. What do I have to do to get to the end of the journey that I want? And so here's this story about people on a journey. They're on the Jerusalem to Jericho road. They are going home. Uh, Jerusalem is where you've been to do your religious duty and Jericho is where you live. Jericho is home and it is hostile terrain through which you have to pass. The land through which they're traveling is notoriously dangerous terrain, classic bandit country, not safe at all. And of course, that's itself a graphic picture of Jesus himself, because the uh, the savior is exactly that. Remember the context of the story? Jesus is on a journey. And there's a sense in which that's what this whole section is about. He is going to Jerusalem and he's traveling through Samaria. He's encountering unfriendly people and having to risk a hostile environment. And more than that, as we've seen, as Luke has been careful to point out, he is journeying towards his ascension. And that's going to take him down the dark and dangerous road of the cross. He is going to be ambushed and he's going to be left not half dead, but wholly dead. There is nothing safe about this journey. And he's already underlined that it's a journey to which his disciples are called as well. They've been called to follow him. And we've seen the start of this uh, new section, verses 57 to 62, that that's a costly journey. And again, we've just seen that as he sends them out, he's warned them of the opposition they're going to face. They're going to be like lambs among wolves. It is not safe. And exactly this same truth is highlighted further in the Samaritan himself. He is on a journey, we're told, verse 33, and it is, of course, dangerous. It's notoriously dangerous for anyone. Travel through this terrain and you can be a sitting target. You are going to be, well, you're going to be like a lamb among wolves. But on top of that, remember, this man is a Samaritan and he's in Judea. And that is very hostile country, a decidedly dangerous place for a single guy from Samaria. It is uh, pretty much like carrying a tricolor flag along the Shankill Road in Belfast. It is simply not safe at all. And that's the point. You are not promised, never promised safety in the sense of a life that is free from trials and troubles and opposition and hardship. What you're promised is security. Came across this quote um, a while back. I'm, I'm not entirely sure where it comes from, so uh, I can't give you the, the source, but this is what was said helpfully. One of the narratives that has to be chiseled away out of suburban Christianity is the idea that what is uppermost in God's heart for you is safety. Here's what Jesus guarantees you. Are you ready? Security. 
What's the difference between safety and security? Regardless of what befalls your life, you are secure in Christ. Your eternity is secure. God's care for you is secure. You will never be outside of his security. So it's uh, not uh, the form, but the power of godliness. It's not safety, but security. And thirdly, it's not works, but grace, which prevails. The third important emphasis, which Jesus highlights through this encounter with the lawyer and the parable, which follows, is the fact that it's not works, but grace, which prevails. Uh, the issue is raised, you'll see, by the very terms of the lawyer's question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And in answer, Jesus deliberately picks up on that word, do. Do this, says Jesus at the outset, and you'll live. And then, as well as uh, he, uh, he, he rounds off the story, it is that same little word he uses, go and do likewise. And what he's doing is showing up the futility of any endeavor to earn God's favor. How are you going to do that but by living the law in its entirety? And that's never going to happen. You're never going to manage. And that's why Jesus narrates for the man this parable. The story is the gospel in the sense that it tells the story of Jesus. We are the injured man. We were headed home, but we're never going to make it. We've been ambushed by sin and left for dead. Religion in the shape of the priest can't help us. Law keeping in the shape of the Levite can't help us. But here's Jesus, who sees us in our need, who has compassion on us, who lifts us up, heals us, takes care of us, carries us, restores us, and bears the cost of it all. And that, says Jesus, that's the gospel, all the way through grace, not works. Okay, that's the, the first block of material. You wonder, will we ever finish tonight? I hope we will. Um, on to the second block of material. Uh, chapter 10, verse 38 to chapter 11, verse 36, call this breaking the silence. Disciples of Jesus are called to share in the mission of Jesus, clearly. And that mission involves us in opening our mouths and proclaiming the message. And we do feel a certain inadequacy. And so appropriately, the second block of material in this section has to do with our being equipped for the task and the challenge which as followers of Jesus we face. You see again how, how Luke is, is just narrating the whole life and ministry of Jesus in, in a very ordered fashion to, to build on what has been done. This true man with his manifesto, uh, accredited by God, now calls us to follow him that we may share in that mission. And that's going to involve us in speaking. And we are being equipped and that involves these three practices, learning, chapter 10, verse 38 to verse 42, uh, then leaning, and then finally loosing. Let me just say a wee bit about each in turn. First of all, learning, uh, verse 38 to 42. Uh, the setting, Jesus, his disciples were on their way. There is a certain urgency. They are passing through and the time is short. The clock is ticking. Uh, he is down to the last six months of ministry. And Martha and Mary here welcome him. And this is the practical challenge which all of his ministry presents. Will you or will you not welcome him? Because you've got to do something with him. That's how the section starts in chapter 9, verse 53, with a town which refuses to welcome. And when the 72 went out on mission, the key question was, will they or will they not welcome Jesus? Chapter 10, verses 8 follow. But here the question is more, what does that welcome best look like? 
Martha does what we often do. She's flicked the switch and she's now in kind of be a good neighbor mode. She is doing a lot. She is distracted and she's angry at Martha and at Jesus. Her actions are maybe neighborly, but her attitude certainly isn't. Mary, by contrast, is doing nothing, uh, doing nothing. She's saying simply, Jesus, you're welcome. I have so much to learn and I want to take every chance I can to soak it in. I need you to teach me because I don't know it all. I don't know anything like it all. The more I see you, the more I listen into you, the more I realize how little I know and how much I have to learn. And so you see, there are these problems with Martha's mode of welcome. First, the pressing need is to recognize that it is a relationship, not a religion. You see how Jesus repeats her name, Martha, Martha. It's a relational thing. Keep it simple, in other words, rather than complicated. Enjoy the moment and see the things that really matter. The prior command uh, is to love God with all your soul and strength and mind. Uh, love your neighbor comes second. And although he's just been talking about loving the neighbor, uh, it is important to recognize the prior command is, is love the Lord your God. That comes first, and it must never be crowded out by our concern for the neighbor around us. And thirdly, Martha is still fully to grasp the principle of grace. Even the command to love your neighbor She's still thinking that she can do it. She can fulfill that herself. And Jesus really is gently correcting her, saying, um, you can't. So don't even try. And so from learning the importance of that, that learning from Jesus, there is, secondly, says the importance of leaning, chapter 11, verses 1 to 13. The disciples have clearly recognized the amazing power that Jesus exercises is related to his remarkable prayer life. Um, so they, they want to understand that connection. They want to learn to pray like that. If they are to go and do likewise, they appreciate they're going to need to learn to pray as he prays, to lean, as it were, on him. And through what follows, we learn three basic perspectives. First, be dependent. Uh, verses two to four. Cultivate a relationship of dependence. Uh, address him. Look to him as father. Our father. Jesus always did, apart from once when he was on the cross. Uh, note the way the whole passage begins and ends with reference to a father. And of course, the friend in the story is a father as well. Uh, this was pretty radical on the part of Jesus to refer to God as father. It was one of the reasons why he ended up killed. Uh, you can check that out in John chapter 5, verse 18. You cultivate a relationship of dependence and you cultivate an attitude of dependence. This is talking about our prayer life, how we come to the Lord. Concentrate, in other words, on necessities, what you will need. And uh, what Jesus runs through in what we know as the Lord's Prayer are basically the following. You need, first of all, relational security. You need him and you need him more and more demonstrating his glory and his kingship. And so you are looking to him, his name be hallowed, his kingdom being realized. Secondly, you need physical sustenance. Thirdly, you need personal renewal, forgiveness. Fourthly, you need moral protection. Uh, in some, you need the Holy Spirit of God himself day by day in your life. Be dependent. 
cultivate that relationship of dependence and cultivate that attitude of dependence um, and don't presume to be able to do it yourself. Verses five to 10, be persistent. And again, to make this point, Jesus tells another brief story. Uh, the story itself, verses eight to 10, it's not so much about God as about us. How desperate are you? Will your desperation find expression in persistence? When you come to pray, the things that you need, uh, do you lay hold of God? I will not let you go unless you bless me, as Jacob uh, declared back in Genesis. And then verses 9 to 10, the application. When Jesus uh, then applies the lesson of the story, it is in terms of three very simple exhortations. Ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking. Uh, be persistent. That's the second uh, important perspective. Be dependent, be persistent. And finally, verses 11 to 13, be expectant. Uh, he will give you what you need. You may be absolutely confident of that, uh, guaranteed to you. And uh, the longer that, that I live, and I guess the longer you live, the more you are able to bear your own personal testimony to that. Uh, he does give you what you need. It's maybe not what you thought you needed. It's maybe not when you needed it as you thought um, it should be. But uh, his timing is perfect. His provision is matchless. You are able to be always expecting. And, and that's what we bring to this whole business of leaning on him. We learn from him. We lean on him. And then uh, in verses uh, 14 to 36, uh, we find this business of loosing. That's to say our tongues being loosed. And this next passage illustrates uh, what that involves. Uh, it starts with a miracle. The miracles fulfill a particular function. They're what have sometimes been called acted parables. And this particular miracle provides a simple graphic illustration of the central thrust of Jesus' ministry and mission. A mute man is enabled to speak. Um, now, you need to note this, this follows immediately Jesus' teaching on prayer. And it starts from the premise that we were made as humanity to be priests. That's to say, on speaking terms with God. That's how we were made in Genesis chapter one. And that's how Luke's gospel begins with a priest who is mute and is enabled to speak. Our predicament as humanity is that we have lost our tongues. And that's what Paul is effectively saying in Romans chapter three, verse 19, um, that we, we um, have our lips sealed. We, we, we simply have nothing to plead before God. Relationally, in other words, we are out of touch and morally we have nothing to plead in our defense. And it was, I think, just this awareness which prompted C.S. Lewis in one of his science fiction uh, trilogy books to speak of Earth as what he called the silent planet. We have lost our voice before God. And you'll see here the, the response on the part of the people who witness this miracle is varied. Uh, broadly speaking, those varied responses comprise, first of all, fascination and that they're amazed. Secondly, denunciation. They're incensed. Thirdly, equivocation. They're ambivalent. And here's what Jesus has to say in regard to each of these responses. First of all, verses 17 to 22, you can't simply dismiss him. Jesus knocks this sort of response on the head. Uh, first of all, saying in verses 17 to 19, it is simply illogical to say that he's from the devil. 
And then he adds in verses 20 and 22, it's foolish to set yourself over against him. So you can't dismiss him. Secondly, verses 23 to 28, you can't be neutral uh, with those who prefer to sit on the fence. He's equally forceful, stresses three important truths. First of all, if you're not for him, you're against him. Verse 23, and you may be thinking, but what about his words a couple of chapters earlier? We said the direct opposite. If you're not against me, you're for me. Chapter 9, verse 50. Um, that was a, an entirely different situation and a very different context. And here uh, you're speaking into uh, a very different context now. If you're not for him, you're against him. Verses 24 to 26, uh, renewal means residence, not just reformation. He tells a scary parable to underline the point. Just getting rid of stuff in our lives, which shouldn't be there, doesn't do the business. That's just reformation. Renewal involves the vacuum being filled with someone else in residence, Jesus himself. <coughs> And thirdly, 27 and 28, relationship requires commitment, not just connection. It's that thoroughgoing commitment, again, that he's calling for instead of any mere connection. So you, you can't dismiss him. You can't be neutral. And verses 29 to 36, you can't plead ignorance. The crowd you'll see here, verse 16 and verse, had been asking for a sign as if they didn't really have enough information to make an informed response. And Jesus says, absolutely no truck with that at all. Instead, verses 29 to 32, he points his hearers to some real people. Uh, neither the people of Nineveh nor the Queen of the South had half as much information as the crowd have already received, he's saying. But that didn't stop them responding at all, anything but. They responded in a, in a very appropriate way. And <clears throat> verse 33 to 36 uh, not only does he point his hearers to some real people, he put his finger on the root problem. If people can't see, he's saying, it's because they choose not to see. It is a symptom of the spiritual malaise of sin, with, uh, which has blinded their eyes to him. That's why they can't see. Um, it is a spiritual and a moral problem. And therefore, you can't simply plead ignorance. Right, then we'll move on to the third block of material now. Uh, I've entitled this block of material uh, simply exposing the fault lines. This runs from verse 37 of chapter 11 through to verse 12 of chapter 12. And as the backdrop to this next block of material, um, it's helpful, I think, to remember that the mission of Jesus sees him engaging with those who are in one way or another hostile. That's to say those who are geographically and relationally at odds with us, like the Samaritans were for the Jew, and those who are theologically and philosophically at odds with us, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees were for Jesus. Uh, that's what his mission demanded of him, and that's what his mission demands of us as well. It involves what used to be called apologetics, um, and that involved um, exposing the fault lines and the thinking of those that were with, and at the same time showing the reasonableness of the good news of Jesus. And much of our engagement with such individuals will be in informal settings. Um, 
And I think we need to recognize that, appreciate that. And that's part of the reason why Luke spends so much time on Jesus in this, uh, this travel mode as he engages with those who are essentially hostile. Um, it will happen, as I say, in informal settings, what we might call table talk. It may take place in the cafe or the pub. Uh, it may take place in the doctor's waiting room. It may take place in the queues at the supermarket. It may take place at the bus shelter, uh, wherever. Uh, uh, 101 different places it's going to take place. Those informal points of contact and engagement. And here with Jesus, it takes place at a dinner party. Um, <clears throat> what Jesus is doing as he sits at table here is underlining that the essence, essence of the message is a relationship, not a religion. And he hammers that home in a way deliberately designed to make his hearers sit up, take notice and reconsider their position um, in a way that is typical of Middle Eastern communication. And I'm not entirely sure that I would recommend it as uh, a pattern to employ, employ uh, just in its entirety in, in a Scottish context, but in a way that was very typical of Middle Eastern communication. He presses home six significant truths by pronouncing in these very stark terms, six woes. And, and they basically underline these important truths. Um, and I've, again, set them out for you. I have them on the screen, on the handout. First of all, Jesus comes to restore a relationship with God, not impose rules from God. That's verse 42. Religion majors on the minors and entirely misses the point. And the point, it's well expressed in the prophecy of Micah. Chapter 6, verse 8, where of Micah, what does the Lord require of you but to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? That's the heart of the gospel. We get to walk with God. Second truth that he underlines, verse 43, uh, Jesus comes to let you rest in the favor of God instead of striving for the approval of others. Uh, woe to you, Pharisees, says, because you love the most important seats and so on. Uh, we tend to spend our lives seeking the reassurance that somehow we are good enough, that either we have made the grade in the eyes of others or we will make the grade. But the only approval which matters ultimately is that of God. And in Christ, we become the beloved children in whom he delights. That's, that's the only approval that ever ultimately matters. That's the second truth Jesus underlines. Third truth he underlines is this, he comes to raise you up, not trip you up. Um, and that's really what lies behind this woe that he pronounces. Uh, because if, if you had any contact with a corpse, um, well, you were contaminated. And pharisaical religion with its thousand and one little trifling regulations was just like that. It caught you out in any number of different ways. Uh, you contact with a corpse. If you stand on a grave, that counts as contact with a corpse. And even if the grave is unmarked um, and you didn't know it was a, a grave, still counts as contact with a corpse. A pharisaical religion is, is just tripping you up all over the place. And Jesus comes to do exactly the opposite, to raise you up, to give you a new start, a future, a life. And that's what he wants them to understand. The fourth truth that he underlines, verse 46, he comes to take the burdens from you, not place more burdens on you. Um, that's the thrust of this fourth woe that he pronounces. Religion loads you down with burdens 
the burden of guilt, the burden of shame, the burden of fear, the burden of worry, the burden of needing always to perform. And Jesus comes simply to take those burdens from us. Come unto me, all you that are laden with heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Fifth truth, he underlines verses 47 to 51 at greater length here. He comes to declare and display God's love, not to ferment and foster hate. Um, and the point he's really uh, addressing is this, that religion does tend, and I mean religion as religion rather than the real thing, it does tend essentially to become something anti, anti this and anti that, and tends to ferment and foster hate. And that's why Christianity, when it has ended up just being a religion rather than a relationship, has often uh, found expression as such to its shame, but in a way that is, is quite contrary to what the gospel actually is. Uh, and that's just not what Jesus is ever about at all with him. It is always grace. And grace both derives from the love of the living God and issues in love in the way our lives are lived. And then the, the sixth truth that he's concerned to highlight is simply this. He comes to open the door to life not shut the door in your face. Jesus came to give life in all its fullness. He came to open the door to a life lived in the presence of God, enjoying the company of God, with the help of God and the power of God for the glory of God. But the experts in the law, the guys who are into religion big time, they basically close that door and effectively throw away the key as well. And so the sequel to the big dinner party bust up and the uh, the opening verses there, uh, chapter 12, verses uh, 1 to 12, uh, the sequel here, um, Jesus puts his finger on a crucial issue. He'd exposed how dangerous and fatal was the mistake that the Pharisees had made, concentrating as they did on the form of godliness and not the power. And such religion focuses on the outward appearance. And it is an attempt to cover over an inner lack. And Jesus exposes this fault line in our thinking by stressing two important truths. The first of which, verses two to seven, is that the Lord knows all about you. Uh, that is, on the one hand, a very sobering truth, verses two to five. But it is also a very comforting truth, verses six to seven. But it is the truth about you. The Lord knows absolutely everything about you all the things that you hide or try to hide from other people he knows all about it but having made that point he then turns it on its head and challenges his hearers with a different thought and that's verses 8 to 12 the lord's knowing you is different and in these verses jesus underlines first of all the importance of relationship uh, do we know god and are we known by God? Uh, that is a very relational issue. Verses 8 to 12. It's always the crucial issue. Remember the very similar challenge with which uh, Jesus concluded the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7 of Matthew, at verses 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. What counts is a relationship. 
in which we are clearly submitted to his lordship and are known by him and know him the importance of relationship and then he also underlines the consequence of that relationship that we have with him as we respond in faith to his call to follow him as his disciples that consequence is essentially twofold uh, you submit yourself to his lordship in your life and jesus will both vouch for you and speak for you again you can um, look over that block of material uh, at greater length um, and at less of a pace for yourselves um, but that's uh, the the block that I've entitled exposing the fault lines chapter 11 37 to chapter 12 verse 12 then we move on to a fourth block of material chapter 12 verse 13 to chapter 13 verse 17 um, that I've entitled addressing the questions um, you'll see that uh, running through all this section, the, the way that I've headed them up is in terms of a verb, starting with loving the neighbours, uh, and, and then most recently now exposing the fault lines and now addressing the questions. Uh, our activity, we share in the mission of Jesus. And one part of that will mean that we engage with the questions which people are invariably asking, either implicitly or explicitly. It's a very interesting book that uh, is really very recently out by a guy called Dan Strange that is entitled Making Faith Magnetic. And it's precisely this sort of thing that he's pointed to, that there, there are issues, there are sort of questions, area of life uh, where people from every single background, including folk who are utterly secular, total atheists, um, they, they do still have a concern. And so sharing in the message of Jesus will mean that we are engaging with the questions which people are invariably asking. And two themes always provide a fruitful field for discussion when we engage with people around us. First of which is wealth, chapter 12, verses 13 to 59. Uh, the whole passage is about wealth, where, where true riches are to be found. What is wealth? What is it to be truly rich? Uh, and it's important to us because we associate two important realities with wealth, security on the one hand and satisfaction on the other. And we often assume that money or material wealth can bring us both security and satisfaction. So we will pay for burglar arms and security systems. We will pay for holidays. We'll pay for a car. We'll pay for this, that, and the next thing that we think somehow is going to give to us both the security that we look for and the satisfaction for which we yearn. Jesus' teaching here comprises, you'll see, a parable, first of all, verses 16 to 20, and then what is effectively an extended commentary on the parable from verse 22 to verse 20, 59. And the bridge between the two significantly is verse 21, have a look at that. This is how it will be, he says, with whoever stores up things, as the NIV translates it, but literally in the original, it's the word treasures, same word that Jesus uses in verses 33 and 34, a treasure in heaven where your treasure is. This is how it'll be with whoever stores up things or treasures for themselves, but is not rich towards God. And those last three words in verse 21 take us to the heart of the matter. That is true wealth. It is being rich towards God. In other words, 
Um, being rich is essentially about living life in a certain direction, namely towards God. That's where true riches lie. And that's what he proceeds to spell out. Uh, here's what living towards God involves. One, living in the realm of grace. Uh, there is a significant and sustained contrast here between God's giving and our toiling in both the parable itself and in Jesus' commentary, which follows uh, living in the realm of grace. Secondly, being rich towards God means very deliberately living with a heart of generosity. And again, you see there's a further sustained contrast in both the parable and the commentary between an obviously generous and an essentially covetous approach to life. Uh, and exactly this emphasis in precisely the same terms is actually picked up by the Apostle Paul in, uh, in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. Uh, if you want references, then you can look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 14, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8, chapter 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 10 and 11. So number one, rich towards God means living in the realm of grace. Number two, it means living very deliberately with a heart of generosity. And three, it means living in the light of eternity. That's how you are rich towards God. You live in the light of eternity. And there is this final sustained contrast in both the parable and the commentary between a truly eternal perspective and, on the other hand, an essentially this world perspective. And what that eternal perspective involves is then spelled out in the closing verses of the chapter 35 to 59. Namely, uh, Jesus is the coming king. So be ready for the party. Verses 35 to 48. Secondly, Jesus is the great fire bringer. So be ready for some fireworks. Verses 49 to 53. And Jesus is the new day's dawn. So be ready for the future verses 54 to 59 with Jesus that new day is already dawning so make sure you're up ready out of your pajamas and ready for that future that he's bringing in that's wealth uh, what is true wealth um, riches material riches uh, no amount of money uh, can buy you what actually your heart most hungers for uh, riches have to do with the direction our lives are lived in and that's every society every generation it is always a key issue where questions surround because people look for security they look for satisfaction and uh, think that uh, if they just had the the money then they would be able to enjoy uh, the true treasure and uh, that's found in a life lived towards god Second issue that uh, is regular, the subject of questions, is suffering. And chapter 13, verses 1 to 17, picks up on this. That question will always arise. If there's a God, how come there is so much suffering in the world? Either, surely, he doesn't care, because if he did, he would surely do something. Or he isn't able, because if he could, he would, surely. Or thirdly, he's just not there at all. And so the theme of suffering runs through this whole passage. And there is a deliberate connection between the two parts of the passage here, verses 1 to 17. It is a verbal, or more accurately, a numerical connection designed to ensure that we read the two parts 
of the narrative together. And the connection is the number 18. 18 people died when the tower fell and the woman has been crippled for 18 years. Um, this is a device which Luke has used before. Uh, you can check that out in chapter 8, verse 42, 43. Um, the connection. Jesus, you'll see here, doesn't explain suffering so much as afford us a perspective in which rightly to view it. And what he does is essentially stress two basic truths. The first of which, verses one to nine, is this. And again, you've got it on the handout and they're on the, the screen. Suffering isn't formulaically moral. There isn't any neat and absolute formulaic connection between an experience of suffering and an expose of sinful living. And that's the whole book of Job, I suppose, um, is, is discussing that as well. There is clearly a huge variety of suffering in the world. But here Jesus addresses two categories of suffering, which spring, I suppose, most readily to people's minds. On the one hand, what we might call moral obscenities, and on the other, what we might call natural catastrophes. And the opening verses here of chapter 13 translate very, very easily and readily into uh, every generation and uh, the news headlines, moral obscenities and natural catastrophes. And the response of Jesus to these events is instructive. Our instinct, he says, is invariably to blame. But our wisdom is actually to learn. It's a subtle shift of perspective. Our instinct is to blame, but our wisdom is to learn. You see that, that that's exactly what happens always. Um, the, you know, the tower block in London that, uh, that went up in flames. Blame, that's the instinct. Who's to blame? Whose fault was it? Who's going to pay and so on? But our wisdom, says Jesus, this is really the perspective. Our true wisdom is actually to learn. And so he tells them a story, uh, the parable of the fig tree, another little parable to get his point across. Uh, God is looking for fruit, for the fruit of repentance, and time is running out. Uh, this was the message of John right at the outset of Jesus' early ministry, uh, chapter 3 of verse 8 of Luke's Gospel. And now as Jesus moved towards the end of his ministry, he is stressing the same thing with a growing sense of urgency. Learn from that. Um, you don't have all the time in the world. The day will come somehow or other, sometimes very tragically, sometimes very suddenly, unexpectedly, and in a way that is, is way before your time. But you, you do not know when the time is going to come. You must give an account to God. Are you ready for that? There is that need to ensure that our lives are being lived towards God, uh, that repentance suffering isn't formulaically moral and then in verses 10 to 17 the second part of the narrative uh, suffering isn't necessarily final um, you'll see here's the backdrop it is a chronic infirmity which the woman is having to bear and we too can be crippled um, not just physically but we can be crippled by pain crippled by hurt crippled by rage crippled by fear crippled by guilt um, beyond her own physical condition, the woman provides to a picture of humanity. We are, as men and women, all crippled by sin, uh, crippled with guilt and unable to live out our lives in a way that is straight and true before Almighty God. 
And the miracle then follows. Remember, the miracles of Jesus acted parables. And this one, too, is a signpost to the future, a picture displaying what Jesus has come to effect. And so notice here what he does. Uh, he sees, uh, discerning the need before she's ever said. He calls, summoning her out to the front. He speaks, declaring that she is now free. And he holds placing his hand upon her life and note when he does it it's on the sabbath and the ruler's response is is just perverse jesus action is a picture this is what the sabbath is actually about uh, it is about a god who sees us in our need about a god who calls us to himself a god who speaks to us declaring that we are free set free from that which has bound us and who lays his hand upon us to hold us and secure us uh, that's what the sabbath is about and it is a pointer forward to the future that god is bringing in um and <clears throat> so uh, in addressing the questions uh, culminating as it does like that jesus is directing us always forward to the coming kingdom and therefore the final block of material in this section uh, in verses 18 to 30 of chapter 13 uh, simply entitled entering the kingdom and it rounds off all that has gone before in this fourth section of Luke's gospel it comprises you'll see three very short parables which pivot around verse 22 Jesus went through the towns and villages teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem it is you see the idea of the journey again a prefiguring of the journey that the disciples will be making here he is on his way to Jerusalem to complete his mission and then his disciples will be going from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth and the mission of Jesus to which his disciples also are called centers around a message as he goes he teaches He's on the move, on the journey, traveling, traveling, and always teaching. That's what the disciples will be doing. That's the mission on which the church is set. And the message is simple and always summed up in a single phrase, namely the kingdom of God, that realm where the rule of God is acknowledged and known, where he runs the show and he does all things well. Jesus has come as the true man to exercise that rule of God uh, through the word of God, by the spirit of God. And we are summoned, therefore, under his lordship to share with him in the exercise of that rule of God. And these three short parables all relate to that single central theme. The first two highlight what the kingdom of God is like, and the third underlines how you enter. Have a look at these, uh, 18 to 21, uh, what it's like. Um, and you'll see it is characterized by growth. Uh, we've seen that already in the, the previous section, the section that I entitled The Miracles. Um, characterized by growth, a growth which is out of all proportion to its size. Two short parables here summarize the essence of the kingdom of God in these terms the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the yeast. And in both cases, a small thing becomes huge. In uh, the Lord's work, He takes the small things and does mighty things with them. 
Remember the, uh, the one miracle that is recorded in all four gospel records. And so God would say, if you, if you want a miracle, you want to see what it's all about. This is, this is the essence of it. The feeding of the 5,000, a paltry little lunchbox, as it were, from one small nameless boy. And, and Jesus does just the most remarkable, expansive, gloriously expansive thing with that. that. That's just the kingdom of God. That's what it's like. That's what happens. And therefore, when we feel really small ourselves, when we're conscious of our own smallness, the smallness of our own gifts, the smallness of our own spirituality, the smallness of our own faith, all that is small about us, Jesus, that's great. I, I, I use that which is small. And uh, the essence of the kingdom of God is he just takes that which is small and makes something huge out of it. Uh, where to understand that and to appreciate that's what the kingdom of God is like. And therefore, um, I, I trust we're, we're always keen to know how do we enter. And that's what he picks up on verses 23 to 30. Again, with a parable. And the parable underlines these three very simple, very basic truths regarding how you enter the kingdom of God. And this this we're to understand this is the culmination this is the the point to which the the mission of jesus is always directing people it is to help them enter the kingdom of god to come into this whole new realm how do you do it uh three basic truths number one it's relational twice over he uses the language of relationship you see here uh, i never knew you um made reference to that already in that passage at the end of the sermon on the mount in matthew 7 uh, you'll see here the previous passage um, in Luke's uh, account here, verses 10 to 17, the, the woman who was crippled, that previous narrative illustrates how relationship with Jesus is formed. We've, we've just seen this woman entering into the kingdom of God, entering into relationship with Jesus. And uh, <clears throat> these um, three important things about her. First of all, she recognized his presence. Secondly, she responded to his call. And thirdly, she rested in his care. And, and that's all you and I do. We recognize his presence. We recognize and respond to his call. And we rest in the knowledge of his care over us, his hand upon us and his word to us, all of which serve to see you and me straightening up. It is essentially relational. It is him and you. Secondly, it is intentional. You'll see how Jesus uses the terminology here, make every effort, he says. And he means us to see that this is never to be to be merely some sort of casual acquaintance, the kind of, you know, hey, you you were in our street sort of thing. But but it is a a very deliberate, very intentional, very passionate. Nothing else matters to me as much as this, Jesus. I want to know you. It is the desire for him. It is very intentional. And the third thing that he uh, he underlines here in these verses is that it's universal. Uh, that's to say it is open to all, no matter who you are. Uh, it is the same for everyone. It is open to everyone, wherever they may be from, whether they're from Samaria or Jerusalem, whether they're from uh, the ends of the earth or um, the, the other side of the globe. Um, no matter, no matter who you are, no matter where you're from, no matter what you've done, uh, the kingdom is open to all who will come. And as we enter into that relationship with him, uh, we find that we are now on speaking terms with him and entrusted and enabled to speak also for him. 
Um, the, the discipline that flows from this, I've simply called finding your voice. And uh, it's, uh, it obviously flows out of this and has to do on the one hand with our learning to engage in prayer and discovering a whole new depth to that relationship with the living God in which we are speaking to him. And on the other hand, are being enabled by him to, uh, to sound out his message in any number of different contexts uh, to the world in which we live and amongst the people amongst whom God has set us. Uh, that's our privilege, and uh, that's the, uh, the grace that God gives to us. I'm always coming back to the promise that God made to Moses in Exodus chapter 4, verse 12, where uh, in the face of Moses saying, you know, I've, I've never been able to speak. I just can't open my mouth. I'm, I get my words all jumbled up and everything like that. God says, I'll help you to speak, and I'll teach you what to say. Uh, that's a great promise. We lay hold of it for ourselves and we'll learn how to apply it. The fourth discipline is, is all about learning to live like that. But we'll forward that to you uh, by email as a package so you can um, peruse that at your leisure. And we'll close now uh, this session by uh, joining together in prayer. Let me lead you then in prayer. God, our Father, it's, it's lovely to know that behind all these screens, there's a, a whole load of us, all of whom uh, just long to be able more and more to enjoy your presence, to enjoy simply being able to pour out our hearts to you in prayer. Thank you that you have come to us and unmuted us in the most wonderful way, liberating, loosing our tongues, that we may be able simply to pour out our hearts to you in praise and with all the petitions that we have, uh, unburdening ourselves to you as our Father in heaven. And thank you that you give to us the privilege of being able to sound out that message of good news to share in the mission of your Son and to bring him to the world in which we live. Uh, we're like Moses, all of us, Lord. We, we are really conscious. We're not eloquent. We don't have the words. We don't have the arguments. We don't know what to say half the time. And thank you that you've made that promise. Uh, I will help you to speak and I will teach you what to say. Uh, we want to live like that and uh, help us then as you send us out. Uh, grant us your blessing. Uh, be with us in all the particular needs that we have this evening. And uh, hear us, Lord, and take us, use us, build us up and use us in the service of your kingdom for your own name's sake. Amen.